Welcome to the Tuesday Theology edition of the Scottsdale Podcast. At Scottsdale, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of His Word. Uh, so I want to welcome you guys to Tuesday Theology. We're so grateful that you are choosing to join us online if you're there with us or with us here uh, in person. We're grateful for uh, you being with us here this evening. We're going to open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to cover two chapters tonight. So um, guys, get your, uh, get your thinking caps on, and, and we're going to move uh, quickly, all right? So let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the time that we have to spend together uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ Thank you that we have the opportunity to learn. I know that uh, reading through these chapters, it can, be, it can be challenging sometimes for us to consider uh, the things that we can't see and the things that, Lord, uh, are the things that you um, have purposed and planned in your mind that we can't even attain to in our own understanding of how it works sometimes. But we, we pray that you would give us uh, faith to trust you. Um, Lord, I pray that we would approach these subjects and your word specifically with a disposition of trust uh, in your character and in your, and your uh, goodness, um, and not with a, a disposition of skepticism or doubt. I pray that you would help us to think clearly and, uh, and learn tonight as we seek to grow together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going to be working on two chapters from Grudem's book, um, Bible Doctrine. The two chapters that we are looking at uh, tonight are chapters 19 and 20, um, The Gospel Call and regeneration. Those are the two that we are going to be working on this evening. So this section of Scripture, this not section of Scripture, uh, this section of the book is dealing with the application of redemption. So that's kind of where we are in, in the book itself. So whenever we think about these, the beginnings of these uh, topics, it's kind of the proper section of the application of redemption. What does that look like in, in real life? And over the last two weeks, uh, we've observed a couple of things. We talked about God's common grace and how he, he is gracious to all uh, in a common way, in a universal way. And then last week, you guys talked about God's purpose in election. Um, and so this week, we're gonna, we are going to begin a several-week section. So this is going to be a section that deals several weeks of material on how the death of Christ is actually applied in the lives of people, in the lives of those who will believe. Uh, we're going to be looking together at the gospel call and regeneration. But before we do that, I want to do a little bit of a review for us. And this is going to be an audience participation opportunity. I don't have any microphones set up for you, but I just want to see um, how we do in this. So we're going to remember for a minute that salvation is a work of the triune God, right? So um, the whole Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all active in our salvation, and they do things in, they're, they're different in their roles in salvation, right? So before we get started, uh, I want to do a little recall exercise to see how we do at identifying how um, the Father and Son are active in salvation. So let's start with first, how is God the Father active in our salvation? What are the ways that you've studied and learned that God the Father is active in our salvation? Mark. Okay, so he sent the son. Okay, he's active in that way. What other ways? Okay, so the calling, right? So the father calls. Okay, what else? He does the effective calling. Yep, the effective calling. So that, that work, that, that work of effectual calling in the lives of believers. What else? 
Think about what you guys talked about last week. Right? right? So his purpose is an election. The Father, um, we see that according to his foreknowledge. Um, he calls, he, he elects the people. What else? Any other things you guys can think of? Okay. Is more or less almost a covenant between the father and the son in that sense. Okay. Yeah. So the father gives the son the ones that he is going to redeem in in one sense. Okay. All right. So yeah. So we have God's purpose and election, effectual calling, um, predestination. Uh, Those things are are works of the father. Uh, Sending the son are all works of the father in salvation. Now, what about uh, the son? God the son. What is the God the son's um, let's say role in salvation? Oh, this, is, this is the easy one, guys. Come on. Let's go. He took on our sins, right? So, yeah, okay. What else? There's more. I mean, th- that is true. Yes, absolutely. But are there more things that are part of that? To do the will of his Father. Okay. So an active obedience in, in, uh, in our salvation, right? So he was actively obedient in that. What else? The life he lived was a life of perfection. Absolutely. Sinless perfection. Perfect lamb. So he was a substitutionary atonement. He died uh, to cover our sins. What else? His crucifixion, right? So he died on the cross. Um, again, he died in our place to bear the wrath of God. Um, he secures the redemption of those that he, he's, that he came to die for, right? So he is, he is the one that is uh, the purchaser, if you want to think of it in those terms, of our redemption. He's the one that accomplishes our salvation. Um, that's right. He's the risen Lord. And we see that as it relates to um, our justification, right? So he, his resurrection um, is proof positive that he is who he said he was and he, he did what he said he did. Right? He lived a perfect life, and thereby he was able to, to rise uh, from the dead. Okay? So we're going to, th- these, are, these are good, guys. I just want to remember that systematic theology, uh, these, these truths aren't just separate truths out there somewhere. Um, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working together in our salvation, uh, and it is all a, a work of, of God. So as we talk tonight, we will talk about how the Spirit uh, works in our salvation as he applies that work of redemption in our lives. But before we talk about this, uh, this application, I want us to take uh, some time. So I want to get, I want to, I'm going to do something a little bit differently than Groot. I'm going to go in a different, a di- not a different direction, but a different order, okay, uh, than Grudem does, because I want us to to talk a little bit first about um, what. What is the means by which the work of Christ is communicated, right? So how is it communicated uh, in the world or to the world? So I'm going to go a little bit out of order from the book. And um, last week we talked about the father's work in election, the son's work in accomplishing redemption. And the, the question then, though, is how does that message come to us? How does it come to us, right? So the father could elect, the son could have died, he could have risen from the dead, but if we didn't, there was no communication of that, then how would we receive salvation in any real way? So um, w- what we have kind of in our world today are some notions, I think, that people believe, maybe even teach, about how this is communicated to people. So the first one uh, is that belief in God is enough, right? So just to be saved just means to believe in God, right? That... Information, we talked about that as it relates to natural revelation. I can just look around, see that there's a God, and I'm, I'm good. I'm good with God just as long as I believe that there is a God. 
Uh, we've learned about God's general revelation or belief that God exists. And we've realized from a couple of passages that that doesn't cut it, right? That doesn't, that's not enough for salvation. That's not effective in, in communicating the message of what God has done in Christ. We see that in Romans chapter 1. We see that in James chapter 2. Uh, as it relates to demons and their faith, they believe that God exists and yet they, uh, they tremble. We also see uh, one that is uh, a quote, uh, and this is it. Preach the gospel always. When necessary, use words. How many of you guys have heard that before? Okay, yeah. So um, I did a little bit of research on that one, and it's, it's often attributed to uh, St. Francis of Assisi, right? So you guys have heard of that individual. Um, now, there's a question as to whether the, this guy actually said that, um, there's, there is a question as to whether these are his words or not, but that is beside the point tonight. Um, oftentimes, people live this regardless of whether he said it or not. And uh, whenever you see this statement, what is, the, what is the undergirding sentiment in that statement? They don't have to say anything. Okay. You just have to live it let people see what you're living. That's right. Yeah, so that you don't have to say anything, that words aren't really necessary, that as long as people see your life, that's like the gospel, right? Like that is like sharing the gospel with people is your life. Now, is there truth to our lives should match a changed life and a transformed life as it relates to the gospel? Absolutely, right? That's, that is a true statement. However, uh, whenever we see that, we, we recognize that oftentimes people end there, right? They don't take the communication of the message any further than that. Another one that we see out there is this. Sharing my testimony is the same as sharing the gospel. Some of you guys may think, well, that's, that's, what I, that's what I do. That's just, that's it for me. Um, now, whenever we think about a testimony, our testimony is our spiritual autobiography, isn't it? It's what God's done in our lives. And that's an important piece of, of what God is doing. It's the story of who we were before Christ, how God began to work in our lives to understand the gospel and how Christ affects uh, how we live. There's a guy, uh, his name's Will Metzger. I don't know if you guys have ever read uh, his book. It's called Tell the Truth. It's, a, it's an evangelism book. Uh, and in this book, he points out um, this. He says, the content of our message is Christ, not our journey of faith and what Christ has done in our lives. Our personal testimony may be included, but witnessing is much more than a spiritual autobiography. Specific truths about a specific person are our proclamation. That person is Jesus. So whenever we think about our testimony, it's an important piece uh, to be able to share what God's done in our lives. But it is not equivalent to this message that we are talking about, this gospel message, this gospel call that we're talking about. So here's the thing. When we talk about the gospel call, which is what we are dealing with first, we see from Scripture that it is first and foremost a proclamation about particular truths regarding a particular person and our response to those truths. It's a particular uh, proclamation with particular truths about a particular person and our necessary response to them. Consider the following passages. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Or 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So we see that this gospel call is a proclamation kind of call. It's something that we speak. There are words that are associated with this, that are connected to truths about people and about a person, and then our response to it. So as believers, it is incumbent upon us to know the elements of the gospel call, or in other words, it's incumbent upon us to know the message that God is communicating to people, right? Because we don't know the message, then are we going to give them proper information? Are we going to give them proper uh, uh, revelation as it relates to what God has said? So this, this evening, we will deal with this under the section of general calling. We're going to talk about this as it relates to a general calling. Now, as it relates to the gospel call, Anthony Hokma is, uh, he's a theologian. Uh, he gives a helpful insight to consider along with what Grudem offers. Okay, so he, there's, a, there's a, a couple of statements that he has in there. I'm just going to use the first one uh, as it relates to this general call. He says, the gospel call invites all hearers. Okay, so it invites all hearers. And that is to say that the gospel call is first universal and general involving an invitation which comes to everyone who hears the gospel, okay? So it is first an invitation to all hearers. We see this in Acts chapter 17, which is up here. Uh, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It is a universal call uh, to hear this message. We also see that in Revelation chapter 22. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, Come. This is speaking of uh, a general or universal call in terms of the command first to repent uh, and in the last chapter of the Bible, an urgent call uh, to hear. Uh, The New Testament clearly teaches, therefore, that the call or summons of the gospel comes to all, uh, comes to all to whom the word is preached or taught. Okay, so whenever we share the gospel, it is a general universal call to all who hear to repent and believe. Okay, it is a universal call in that sense. Now, what, is, what are the elements of this call? What is, what, is the, what is the information that needs to be communicated uh, within this gospel call, the elements of the gospel call? There are, as you read, three elements that are important. Um, the first of which is the explanation of the facts concerning salvation. The elements of this explanation of the facts concerning salvation. Now, how many of you grew up using, maybe didn't grow up, um, the Romans Road, right? So the Romans Road is a a fairly uh, simple and helpful tool. Now, what I would encourage us to remember, uh, the facts concerning salvation, now these are not all the gospel, right? So whenever we think of the gospel, we recognize it is the proclamation of the good news of what Jesus has accomplished, okay? So whenever we talk about all people have sinned, that is a contextual thing. Right? So that's the context of the gospel. Uh, it, why is it good news? Why is Jesus' coming good news for people? Well, there's a context for that. First, all people have sinned. This is a foundational truth that people uh, need to understand as we communicate with them about uh, salvation and what it means to be saved. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, and as we see it is not just that all people have sinned, right? So everybody can look around and say, okay, 
Everybody sinned. That means we're all bad people. But there's a more important piece that, that we see, even more importantly, the law reveals our sin personally. So it's not just that everybody sins, that sin, there's sin in the world, but that we are personally sinners. We have personally sinned against God. We see this in passages such as Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty or be held accountable before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. Nobody's justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We see this also in James chapter 2. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law, ultimately because we are offending or we are transgressing against the lawgiver, right? So any offense against his law is an offense against him. So we see first that we, we recognize that all people have sinned and that the law reveals our personal sin, that we are sinners, that individually we are sinners. We also see the context for this is that the penalty for our sin is death. Um, there is a consequence for this sin, this personal offense against the holy God. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. The good news in the midst of this very bad news that we've sinned against the holy God and that because of our sin, we are destined to die and face his judgment. The good news comes in is that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. This is the good news of the gospel. Uh, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We also see uh, in other passages, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Even in this, we see Christ substituting himself. He died for our sins, uh, the sins that we should have died for. He is the one who, in fact, died for them if, if we trust in him uh, as Savior. There's another one that I added on here that Grudem didn't have because sometimes, sometimes I think we short circuit our complete telling of the gospel because we leave Jesus dead, right? Uh, he's, according to this, the good news is that he, di he died. And that is good news. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then Paul says we're still in our sins, so I'd encourage you as you share the gospel, uh, a complete, full uh, gospel presentation deals with the fact that Jesus Christ rose bodily on the third day, defeating death and sin and accomplishing a salvation for us. And as you guys learn, he ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. Uh, he's our intercessor and our mediator. These are all part of the good news of the gospel. Romans 15, 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 4 says, uh, in addition or additionally after that he died, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The reminder there is, uh, sometimes people use that passage to say that God doesn't exist, but that's not what that passage teaches us. It teaches us that if Jesus uh, died and didn't rise from the dead, then we still are accountable to God. We just don't have anybody to mediate between us. We're still in our sins. We still have to pay for those on our own. Uh, in some way, shape, or form. 
Um, that we, if we have put our hope in Christ, then we are foolish, is what Paul says in Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, if he has not been raised from the dead. But understanding these facts and even agreeing with them, right? there are many people in our world that would look at these and say, okay, I can see historically that there was a man named Jesus. That man named Jesus died. I may even believe that he rose from the dead. Um, but there, that is not enough for a person to truly be saved, a mental understanding of this. Uh, there must also be in our gospel presentation an invitation for a personal response on the part of the individual who will repent of his or her sins and trust Christ personally. So an invitation to respond to Christ personally in repentance and faith. Right? This is part of the gospel call. It's not just, here's the information about Jesus. No, based on this information about Jesus, the invitation to you is to turn from your sin and trust him as your only hope for salvation. This is the call that God places on people or, or extends to people. We see this in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We also see this in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 21. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, we've already read this one once, uh, but in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then Romans chapter two, verse four, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? We also even see this uh, when Jesus comes on the scene in Mark chapter one, um, this isn't on the screens, but Mark chapter one, whenever Jesus begins his ministry, uh, he even gives this initial invitation, as it were, um, to repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, Mark chapter one, verse 14 and 15. Uh, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So even Jesus himself gives this invitation, this, this exhortation to come. Now, I do want to make a, uh, again, as I was reading through some additional things, uh, Anthony Hochmer wrote this in his article. He says this, the gospel invitation is, however, at the same time, a command. Okay, so it's not just an invitation, uh, it is a command similar to a summons which comes from a king. You think of God as a king who is extending a call, an invitation. It's much like a command. Note how Jesus expresses this point in the parable of the great banquet. He talks about the master and the servant. Go out into the highways and hedges. Compel the people to come in that my house may be filled. The gospel invitation is not one a person may feel free to accept or decline as one might with an invitation to go bowling or go to dinner. But it's an order from the sovereign Lord of all creation to come to him for salvation, an order that can be ignored only at the cost of one's eternal perdition. So it is a, it is a command, not like an invitation to go bowling. It is a summons from the king to come to him for salvation. And apart from him, that order, if ignored, uh, only results in the cost of one's eternity. 
Any genuine proclamation of the gospel must include an invitation to make a conscious decision to forsake our sins and come to Christ in faith, asking him for forgiveness of our sins. If either the need to repent of sins or the need to trust in Christ for forgiveness is neglected, there is not a full and true proclamation of the gospel. In addition to this, um, someone believes, right? So you say, uh, repent and believe in the gospel. And in response or in, in, in uh, indirect connection to that is a promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It says this is part of the call. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his own and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John six thirty seven. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So we see that there is a, a summons, a call to, to salvation. And in receiving that and responding to that, there is the promise of forgiveness and eternal life. So coupled with the promise of forgiveness and eternal life, there should be an assurance that Christ will accept all who come to him in sincere repentance and faith, seeking salvation, reminding ourselves again of that passage in John six thirty seven: him who comes to me, I will not cast out. Now recognize that this Gospel call is a universal call. It goes to all people uh, everywhere whenever the message of the gospel is proclaimed. That is not to say that everybody everywhere has heard it, but whenever it is proclaimed, this is the offer that is made. We also recognize that not all who hear this general call will believe in the gospel. This general call can be resisted and it is resisted by everyone who hears the gospel but does not believe in Christ. Think about uh, Stephen just before he was martyred. He says this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. This was not new with Stephen, for even Jesus experienced such rejection in Matthew chapter 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. So we see that this general call is often rejected. People reject this call to come to salvation. We also know that some who hear this general gospel call respond to the invitation. I mean, I'm assuming, maybe a gracious assumption, that everyone in here has responded to this invitation to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And that you are walking in the assurance that because of that, you have eternal life, that you are promised eternal life. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands who, uh, who that is true of, but my assumption is that, that that is true of us here today. So we know that some who hear this gospel call will respond. They will repent and believe in Jesus. They will receive the promised eternal life. So there's a question that is, that is begged here. What's the difference? How do some people hear? Why do some people hear and reject and some people hear and respond? In the case of those who believe, the gospel call, as we've learned, serves as an effective call to salvation. In hearing the gospel message, it serves as an effective call uh, to salvation. Now, we're talking now about effective calling. Uh, There are other ways in which it has been um, described. Effectual calling uh, has been a way in which it has been described But effective calling is what we are talking about here. 
And effective calling is a, an absolutely important piece of this. And what uh, an, another statement that I found, strictly speaking, the effectual or effective call comes from God the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit is limited to the beginning of the application of redemption to the soul. This powerful call starts the process, okay? So what I'm gonna show you is a, a, a kind of a graph of sorts. I don't know if it's really a graph, um, but this is a, a picture. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. Some of you may be, some of you may not be. This section of systematic theology uh, that we're talking about down here is um, right down here, right? So we're, we're in this general vicinity right now. Um, it's called the Ordo Salutis. Okay, so this is a, a Latin word that means the order of salvation. So what, is the, what are the steps? Again, most of the steps we can't see, okay? And there's not like a necessarily time period between them. So this happens and then there's a couple more days and this happens. Like we don't have that scripturally, but we see these things as it relates to words uh, in scripture. And so this is called the order of salvation. So here we are. We talked about this. Last week, election, before creation, because of God's sovereign good pleasure, God chooses people to be saved. We're talking today about calling and regeneration. Calling, God summons people to himself through the human proclamation of the gospel, so they respond in saving faith. And regeneration, God secretly and sovereignly imparts spiritual life to those who have been called. And then from there we see conversion, justification, adoption. And then this is all part of salvation. Green is what happens in salvation, okay? This is what happens for the rest of our lives, okay? Sanctification, perseverance, and then ultimately glorification, okay? So this is the, the order, the, the way in which God works in salvation. We also have some additional uh, definitions related to effective calling. This is one that comes from, uh, the one that comes from Wayne Grudem. Effective calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel. That's our, our responsibility, right? We are called to proclaim the gospel. We've seen that already. And that gospel message, what that entails, in which he, God the Father, summons people to himself in such a way they respond in saving faith. There are additional, um, what's the next slide? I don't remember what it was. Okay, yeah, cool. So we see this, the reason, the way in which Grudem describes this being a work of the Father is connected in that passage in Romans chapter 8, okay? So Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, so he's, he's talking from the position of the Father, okay? God the Father is the one doing these things. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and Grudem and many others uh, associate that calling with effective calling because those whom he called, he also justified. So there's a, 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 an ordered link in the fact that when they're called, they are assumed Past tense, justified. This happens in their lives. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Many people call this the golden chain of salvation. So this is a, a chain that the links work together in our salvation. There's another, um, another uh, definition that comes from a Baptist catechism uh, on what is effective calling or what is effectual calling. I would sing this to you guys um, because our, our children learn it, but I'm going to save you guys. Uh, that tonight. So what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit 
whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, right? We've talked about that, the gospel, part of the context of the gospel, the content of the gospel, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ. We come to know who he is and what he's done and renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel, okay? So we see this as a work of the Father through the Spirit, okay? So we talked about that in terms of the very first definition, strictly speaking, as a work of God the Father uh, uh, in the Son or by the Son and through the Spirit. The power of the Spirit is the one that is accomplishing uh, this work in us personally, right? So the Spirit is the one that actually is applying it in our lives. Though God, the Father, is the one that is calling, the Spirit is the one that is working in our hearts and in our lives to enlighten us, to open our minds to the knowledge of Christ, to convict us of our sin and our misery, and uh, renews our wills. We talk about it with regeneration and enables us to embrace Christ freely, uh, offered to us in the gospel. As we continue on with effective calling, uh, we see first that it is, it is an act of the Father, It's an act of God the Father by the work of the Spirit. Effective calling can only be of God because whenever we say effective, we're talking about cause and effect, right? So that it is effective in that it's going to accomplish its purpose. It's going to accomplish its purpose in calling people out of death, out of darkness, into life and into light and into fellowship with the Father in the Son. We see this in multiple passages of Scripture 1 Thessalonians 2, we are encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. Or 2 Peter 1, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We also see that God speaks effectively through the general human proclamation of the gospel. This is why we must preach the gospel, right? Because he, he works through the proclamation, the general proclamation of the gospel. Um, whenever someone comes to faith in Christ, um, it is not apart from the general proclamation of the gospel. You must hear the gospel to believe. This is the means, the manner by which God calls people. Uh, the gospel call is general and external and often rejected. We've seen this. The effective call is particular, internal, and always effective. Romans 8.30, we looked at this, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified, he justified, he also glorified. We see also in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, so we see uh, also that God chooses the, uh, to effect heart change through the general external gospel call that brings about a human response. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. We also see that God summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith and repentance. Acts 16, 14, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira. Her name was Lydia. She was a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. And this is what we, whenever we talk about how they respond uh, by being summoned uh, in saving faith and repentance, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Peter's message. We also see, unless God works in people's hearts to make the proclamation of the gospel effective, there will be no genuine saving response. This was in the section related to prayer. Therefore, prayer is just as important as proclamation. We are praying for people. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. As we continue on, 
um, we see this, this passage here, um, and I want to point our attention to a couple of things as it relates to effective calling. A couple of illustrations that I um, think of as it relates to this, and then we'll jump into uh, the next piece. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now let me ask, did you guys notice that I missed a word there? Your, Your salvation. So he's not just talking about a, a general call. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Whenever we see this, we're reminded that the calling is a calling in which I hear God calling me to salvation, particularly, specifically, compellingly to himself. I think about it in a couple of ways. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, in the midst of a congregation, right? So there's a midst of a service, and they're sitting there, the pastor is preaching his heart out, and after the end of it, they, make, they, they go and they talk to the pastor, and oftentimes they say something like this, I feel like I was the only one in the room. I feel like the message that was being preached was being preached directly to me. And that there was nobody else in the room. And maybe nobody else responded to that message. But that one person, there was a particular working in their heart and in their life by which God was drawing them in an, in an unexplainable way, maybe, but in an effective way by which they heard the gospel differently than maybe they had heard it a thousand times before. How many of you, how many of you uh, not maybe not by a show of hands, but how many of you heard the gospel more than one time before you believed? Yeah, many of us did. I mean, I went to church from the time that I was an infant. I can't remember a time that I wasn't there, but didn't come to know savingly Christ until I was in college. So there were many times that I heard the gospel. There was one time whenever it became an effective call to come uh, to surrender to Christ our King. Or I think of it in this way. I think about imagining a marketplace where there's people all around, maybe thousands of people, and there's somebody selling bread. Bread for sale, bread for sale, bread for sale, bread for sale. Thousands of people are not responding, but then in a moment you hear, this bread's for you. In your heart, you say, I, I've got to have that bread. That bread is what I need right now. And so you respond to the calling, even though everybody else may not even care anything about the bread. For you in that moment, there's something so necessary about that bread that you would go to that person, whoever it is, and receive the bread. These are illustrations of maybe what it looks like in the response of what we could consider but I also uh, found a, another quote. Again, this is a little bit longer section, so uh, bear with me as you listen to this. But he says, this is an explanation or, or another illustration. Let us suppose that you are drowning with an earshot of friends on the shore. You cannot swim. Wishing to respect your integrity as a person and wanting to enable you to help yourself as much as possible, one of your friends standing on the shore, an excellent swimmer himself, shouts to you, that all you should do is start swimming to the shore. The advice, though well meant, 
is worse than useless since you cannot swim yourself. What you need and need desperately is for your friend to jump in and tow you to shore with his powerful strokes so that your life may be saved. What you need at that moment is not advice, good advice, even gracious advice. You need to be rescued. This is our situation by nature. We are lost. We are dead in sin. Being dead in sin, we cannot make ourselves alive. Since we are dead in sin, our ears are deaf to the gospel call and our eyes are blind to the gospel light. We need a miracle. This miracle occurs when God in his amazing grace calls us effectually through his spirit from spiritual death to spiritual life, from spiritual darkness into his marvelous light. After we've made, been spiritually made alive, we can once again become actively involved in the process of salvation and repentance, faith and sanctification and perseverance. But at the very beginning of the process, at the point where being spiritually dead, we need to become spiritually alive. We need nothing less than a miraculous rescue from the murky waters of sin in which if left alone, we would drown. This is what happens in the effectual call. God saves us. God comes and he rescues us when we cannot rescue ourselves. Now, in response to this, there are sometimes caricatures that are built to oppose this teaching. Uh, two of these are um, maybe said like this, and then I'll, I'll give questions, maybe ways in which they're posed as questions. Caricatures or the, the, uh, the possibilities. What about, is there a person who wants to be saved but can't be because they aren't called? Or the person who is saved kicking and screaming because God overruled their will somehow. Maybe they're asked in a different way in, in maybe a more positive questions. First, does everyone who wants to believe in Christ become a Christian? And secondly, does anyone become a Christian against their will? Now you might say, huh, I don't know about the answers to those. Maybe you have been able to consider those. Now, the answer to these questions, in part, flows for, into the next topic for our night, which is that of regeneration. Regeneration. I love the way that one author deals with the necessity of regeneration. He says, an effectual call, however, must carry with it an appropriate response on the part of the person called. So, right? so there's a call to people to respond, and people must respond. It is God who calls, but it is not God who answers the call. It is the person to whom the call is addressed. And this response must enlist the exercise of the heart and mind and will of the person concerned. The question he then says is this, how can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins, whose mind is at enmity with God, who cannot do what is well-pleasing to God, answer a call to the fellowship with Christ? Fellowship is never one-sided. It is always mutual. We also see that one writer says the immediate response to the call, the effectual call, is regeneration or the new birth, the spiritual resurrection of the soul, which was dead in trespasses and sins. And we see a couple of truths that we've learned over the course of time related to regeneration. First, it is totally a work of God. We see this in uh, John 1, uh, 12 and 13. Uh, whenever we see the words, the phrases that we are born of God, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. 
We know this is a reality uh, in connection to uh, Nicodemus. Uh, we've studied him as it relates to John chapter 3, when it talks about being born again. We also see it in 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So these are um, absolutely important pieces reminding ourselves that in the same way that we did not choose to uh, physically birth ourselves, the same reality is true in a spiritual sense. We must be born again. God is the one that gives us this new birth. He gives us a heart of flesh where there was a heart of stone. He puts his spirit within us, causes us to walk in his statutes and to observe his ordinances and his commands. We also see, as it relates to this, all three persons of the Trinity are at work in regeneration. Ephesians 2.5 says that God made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that we have been saved. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and the earned circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. We, we see this um, as it relates to uh, God's work in us continually. We also see uh, that the, effective, uh, the nature of the effective call and regeneration, these are work together in, uh, in reality. Um, part, we see this in 1 Peter 1.23, the connection between uh, the word and the, uh, the being born again. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So we see the very close connection between being born again and being called through the word of God. So it's not, uh, n- most likely, it's not a, many, many months kind of thing. There is a a, a time in which God brings us to spiritual life. We also see in Acts 10, uh, 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, that same time when he was speaking the words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. We also see as it relates to uh, this, a, a statement that maybe has gotten some bad press um, because it sounds like something that God does to overthrow us uh, called irresistible grace. It's a theological term we see that speaks to um, the fact or describes the effects of the gospel call and regeneration, both of which are acts of God alone and guarantee that we will respond in saving faith. That, and at the same time, as we just read, that this is a call to people It is not meant to downplay human responsibility in responding to the gospel. These are truths that we hold uh, together, that God is sovereign in this, that he works to draw us to himself, and that we respond uh, in faith by the regenerating work of the Spirit. We also see, as it relates to this, uh, that we don't know the exact nature of regeneration. It is a mystery to us. Even though it is a mystery to us, we know that somehow... We who were spiritually dead have been made alive to God in a very real sense, have been born again. But we don't understand how this happens exactly or what God does exactly to give us this new spiritual life. We see in Ephesians 2, uh, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. 
We also see in John 3 that uh, I tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So we see this even as he was dealing with Nicodemus when he said the wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we don't know exactly how the Spirit is doing this, right? So I can't see the Spirit regenerating somebody's life. It's a mysterious work, but we know the effects of it. Because uh, we see this as it relates to uh, our effect um, being an instantaneous one-time event. Usually, as Grudem talks about, the most dramatic change uh, in adult, hardened sinner, so somebody who has maybe a history or a lifestyle of sin that God dramatically saves them out of, uh, often less dramatic in those who were raised in a godly home. Now, this is not like hard and fast rules. So there are people that were raised in godly homes that choose to do very sinful things. And God saves them in, in great and miraculous ways. But sometimes, think of children. Uh, we have children, um, and they have not yet gone down very heinously sinful roads, right? So if, if God regenerates their hearts, calls them to himself, the history and litany of sins are going to be Things like I disrespected my parents. I lied about something that seems minor. I can't say, none of them have murdered anyone. None of, none of, I mean, Jesus says that anger in the heart is like murder. So they've, they've, they've murdered people in their hearts, I know, but not outwardly. Um, they've not done things that we would look at and say, wow, that's, that person is a sinner. But I can assure you, that all four of my children are sinners and that their conversion would be no less uh, miraculous. It would just maybe be less dramatic. Right? Their, their life would not necessarily be as upended um, lifestyle-wise as somebody who came to faith later in Christ, uh, came to faith in Christ later in life. Um, it becomes evident over time in patterns of behavior and desires, including, but not limited to, Here's the list. A heartfelt trusting in Christ for salvation and self-awareness of belief and assurance of sins being forgiven. A desire to read the Bible and pray and a sense that these are meaningful spiritual activities. A delight in worship. A desire for Christian fellowship. A sincere desire to be obedient to God's word and scripture. A desire to tell others about Christ. People may say uh, something like this. I don't know exactly what happened, but before that moment, I did not trust in Christ. I was wondering and questioning in my mind, but after that moment, I realized that I did trust Christ. He was my Savior. Something happened in my heart. And then from there, we see um, people growing in their faith. They start walking that out in their lives. Their desires begin to change. This is what regeneration is. It's being born again. Our desires are now new and different. The Bible calls this becoming a new creation. Whenever we talk about it in these things, uh, in this sense of regeneration, it comes before saving faith. I read an account of a college student who went into a systematic theology class, and on the board was written these words, regeneration precedes faith. Right? So regeneration, the work of God in our hearts uh, to give us new life, to bring us from death to life, precedes saving faith, meaning it comes before we trust in Christ. This work of God gives us the spiritual ability to respond to God 
in faith. We see this in John chapter 6, uh, verse 46, verse 44. Uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. So we see these things in reality. We also see uh, in, in Acts chapter 16, one of those listening, we talked about Lydia, uh, that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the message that Paul shared. Uh, in this time, it is the, the Lord who did the opening for her to respond. Her faith was a result of God opening her heart to believe. And she did not believe, then God opened her heart. God opened her heart, and then the next step was belief. And we see this uh, as we think about how, uh, how God works and the reality of uh, our, our lives apart from the working of God. This the reason we see this is because regeneration is contrasted to our carnal mindset, who we are before Christ. Right? So our natural bent is in this direction. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Uh, Romans 3.11, there's no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. So whenever we say regeneration precedes faith, Remember back to what we talked about in terms of the gospel call and repentance and faith, right? They are commands. They are a call to do something, to respond to a message. And if that message is to surrender our lives to Christ, and apart from the Spirit of God, uh, we consider those things foolishness, we cannot understand them, and we do not seek God, then we would not on our own go after God. We would not ever take that first step of faith in terms of active obedience. It's only whenever we have a new heart, whenever the Spirit of God opens our eyes and opens our heart, uh, that we believe and respond in faith. That trust, that obedience, that uh, direction to surrender and to worship and to submit to the King. We also see that regeneration becomes, comes before life change, including saving faith. Now, the, what, what Grudem was talking about here is some within Christianity defining regeneration in terms of the total life uh, change that re results from the reception of saving faith. Therefore, they would be correct to say that it follows saving faith. However, this would not be the biblical definition of regeneration. This would be a biblical definition for sanctification, right? That there's a change in life that happens after regeneration and transformation of our hearts. Regeneration, we've already talked about, is a one-time event. We are not constantly regenerated. Right? It, is a, it is a being born again, just in the same way that you are not constantly physically born. Right? It happens one time. It's a one-time event in our lives by which we, are gone, we go from death to life. We're not constantly going from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. It is an event. It is a drawing out of darkness into light from, from death to life, from not being in fellowship to being in fellowship uh, with God. Regeneration is the initial work of God in which he imparts spiritual life to us, we can emphasize that we do not see regeneration itself. So like I said, I can't look at James whenever he's listening to the gospel. I couldn't have, I couldn't have looked at him that day that God uh, called him to himself and opened his heart and said, Look, there's regeneration right there. Like, there's not like a, a level, right? So it's not like empty and then we see, right? So it's not like that. There, it's, it's something that we can't see happening, but we look at the effects of it we only see the results of it in our lives. And that uh, faith in Christ for salvation is the first result that we see. So oftentimes people think faith is the precipitating event to regeneration because that's what they see happening in somebody's life. 
Because regeneration is an unseen work of God, we don't see God doing the change in the people's heart by which they then believe. You see that? You see that? Because we can't see regeneration, we only see the evidence of it, which is somebody's faith. Okay? All right. So Philippians 1.6, we uh, recognize uh, Paul writing, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ. A reminder to us that God, once he begins that work, right? So if he opens our heart, he doesn't leave us to kind of navigate our own way. He brings it to completion. He accomplishes the salvation. It's not a possible or potential by, um, by a, a partial regeneration. It is that he regenerates us and then that regeneration by his effectual call through the gospel will lead to faith and salvation for the person who is called, okay? Genuine regeneration, regeneration must bring results in life. And this is, this is the rest of our lives. This is what the rest of our lives look like after God opens our hearts to believe. We see godly character. Uh, that is faith. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves uh, his child as well, or loves the Son as well. We also see uh, that it is born out in our lives through repentance. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Now, this is not uh, a doctrine that says, uh, that teaches sinless perfection, okay? So whenever someone is regenerate, whenever someone is a Christian, we do not believe that, that in the doctrine of sinless perfection, that we immediately become sinless, right? That we don't sin any longer. But we do see uh, no one who is born of God will continue to sin, uh, because God's seed remains in him. They cannot go on sinning. And the understanding is in a habitual way. Right? So we cannot continue on in something that we are no longer, um, that we are no longer um, under its power. So we've been born of God. We've been born again. We are no longer living as the old dead self. So we should not be able to continue happily submitting ourselves to that. Okay? Um, Christ-like love, that we grow in love for others. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, which is why, uh, as um, brothers and sisters in Christ, we should not use words like hate uh, towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, because that is antithetical to love that comes from God. We also see that we are called to overcome worldliness and Satan. Uh, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So we see that this is part of our, uh, the, the new life born out of regeneration um, that we see in our own lives. We also see other necessary changes. Faith and character change will result from regeneration rather than leading to it. Uh, we see this in uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We talk about good works that God prepared beforehand. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We also see, as it relates to this, uh, the spiritual fruit that's born uh, in the character traits from the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. We recognize that in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit is, a, is, is produced by the power of the Spirit working within every believer. So we can look at people's lives and say, are they growing in these things? 
Not that we look at it in order to judge or to measure in a particular quantifying account, but in a general pattern. Are they, are they growing in these things? Are they more loving than they were six years ago when they became a Christian? Are they more patient and gentle? Are these things becoming more and more the things that they love? Or are they um, finding themselves, as I think the First John passage, burdened by the commands of God? Or do they delightfully submit to His Word? Do they find great joy in, in doing what God calls them to do in obeying His Word? Um, not ne- uh, but we also see that it's not necessarily church activity or miracles. We see this as it relates to what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. It's a reminder to us that uh, mere activity is not regeneration. Um, it is not the only evidence that we see. They don't, Paul nor Jesus, point to activity in the church or miracles as evidence of regeneration. They rather point to the character traits in our lives. So um, we're reminded that regeneration drives us to having a whole new uh, character. Uh, We are a new creation in Christ um, through his regenerative work and by the effectual calling drawing, drawing us through the gospel. Okay? All right, let's pray and then we can have any questions. Lord, thank you so much for today. And for your word, I thank you for this material, Lord. It's a lot of information to cover. I thank you for uh, the attentiveness of those here tonight. I pray that you give us grace as we uh, seek to continue to consider this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media and tag us at Scott's Hill. Till next time.